Well, grace and peace, sanctuary. This is um, the first time I've stood in front of you in this context with this collar on. And for those of you who have children, if they have been coming to church with a little bit of fear and trepidation, it's because I've been sneaking back there and telling them that these hold our heads on. (laughs) So if they seem to be a bit skeptical of the pastoral team, now you know why. I want to talk today about a few different things. I want to talk to us today about rhythm. I want to talk to us about flannel boards. I want to talk about judgment. And I want to talk about redeeming spaces. So that's just to give you a bit of an outline. Again, rhythm, flannel boards, judgment, and redeeming spaces. So I have a four-year-old daughter. Her name is Eleanor. She's really great. And one of the things that she's catching on onto this year, especially as she's three and four, is she's catching on to these ideas of rhythm. She's catching on to this idea that there are seasons throughout the year, and these seasons usually follow the weather. And for kids, there are basically like the big three, right? There's the one where you dress up and get candy, which is Halloween. You can say Halloween in here. It's okay. Um, there's Halloween. There's, there's the one where you eat a lot. Thanksgiving. There's the one where you eat a lot, but there are also presents. Christmas. And there's also the one where you write little cards to people that you don't really know that well, but there seem to be a lot of hearts involved. And um, you send those off to friends, and there's also candy involved in this one too, which is Valentine's Day. Thank you. Thank you. It is Ash Wednesday for us this year. So thank you to those of you who came for our Ash Wednesday service. But even at her age, this age of three, age of four, She's catching on to this idea that there are these kinds of cycles. And today is this first Sunday in Lent. So for thousands of years, there's been this understanding of rhythm, of groove, that we know as the church calendar. And this calendar, it makes space for the whole breadth of human experience, not just the celebrations. But there are periods of celebration, like Shrove Tuesday. Who was here for our Shrove Tuesday feast? this past week. It was delicious. There are also periods of reflection, days like Ash Wednesday, the season of Lent, Good Friday. There are seasons of anticipation, like Advent and Epiphany. There are seasons of coming together. There are seasons of going away in silence, all for the purpose of participating in and walking with the life of Christ. So a few things that I want to say about Lent this morning. While Lent is a season of fasting and a season of focusing, it is not a way for us to earn something from God. God does not bless us because we give up things. We don't need to barter with God in this way. Remember, the sun shines on the the just and the unjust. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. So instead, we fast as a way of letting go of old things, even good things, things that we tend to cling to too tightly in a way for making room for God. For those of you who have been fortunate enough to have babies, 
you know in those months of pregnancy and expectation, anticipation, there's also a season where you have to create space. You have to make rooms ready for this new life to come and to live with you. And sometimes that means you have to get rid of old furniture. Maybe you put it in storage or you put it in the garage. That's not to say you have to get rid of the thing altogether, but the time for that thing is no longer appropriate. This is what seasons of fasting do for us. So again, Lent, the season of fasting and focus, it's not about bartering with God. And in that way, fasting is not necessarily for God in the sense that it makes God happy. Fasting is done unto God as an act of worship, an act of love and adoration. But God is not looking for you to give up the good things in your life that you love before he blesses you. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. But in this season, we can say, God, we want to love you more. And that is why we fast. That is why we participate in almsgiving. That is what this season of Lent calls us to. But in this way, fasting is for us. Fasting is for us because it weans us off of our dependency on the stuff that prohibits us from fully depending on Christ and the power of his resurrection. Lent allows us to be made empty in a way that makes room for God to fill us. It's a call for each of us to renew our ongoing commitment to what the resurrection means in our own lives, here and now. But this call, it demands some things from us. This call demands both the healing of our souls and the honing of our souls, both penance and faith, both a purging of what is excessive in our lives and a heightening, intensifying of what is meaningful yet lacking in our lives. Lent is the road, the process by which resurrection is birthed into our lives. Again, to come back to this idea of giving birth For those of you, again, who have been fortunate enough to be pregnant, or those of you who have been maybe unfortunate enough to know someone who's been pregnant, you know that there are both cravings and aversions in those seasons. Who knows what I'm talking about? My wife, when she was pregnant with our daughter, Eleanor, she really, really, really wanted a Budweiser. which is interesting for her because she does not drink. But for those like nine months, I don't know if it was something about like the prohibitive nature of alcohol and pregnancy. I'm not sure, but she really, really wanted a beer. And at the same time, she hated tacos. She could not be around tacos. She could not go to a restaurant where they serve tacos. So this is the kind of season that we willingly participate in. We understand that there are things in our lives that we have natural aversions to, things that we probably don't want to do, that we need to take on. And there are things in our lives that are good things, things that we crave, things that we love, things that are good. But we have to let those things go, at least for a season. And all of it is for the purpose of giving birth to new life. Lent requires us to stop for a while to reflect again on what is going on in us. But we're also invited to return to the way of Christ wholeheartedly and in every aspect 
of our lives, to get our physical bodies on board with what we believe in our minds and in our hearts to be true. That's why I so love the invitation to come to our knees and worship today, because Lent is so much about our physical bodies and about putting our bodies in a position that reflects the position of our hearts. It's a commitment to refuse to accept that we are simply brains on a stick and instead engage our faith and our worship with our physical selves. As Eugene Peterson said, we don't become more spiritual by becoming less human. So in this way, we allow ourselves to feel things like hunger, to let the scratch go unitched for a season, and resist the addictive dopamine rush of social media. In Lent, we are challenged again to decide whether we as individuals truly believe that Jesus is Lord. And if we do believe that Jesus is Lord, will we live accordingly? Even when the magic of Christmas fades, even when the brightness of the star of Bethlehem grows dim, even when the smoke has cleared from the mountain. So in this way, Lent not only turns us back to Christ, Lent turns us back to our neighbor. Chrysostom said, True fasting includes fasting of the ear, refusing to receive slander, and fasting of the mouth, a refusal to rail against our neighbors. So Lent turns us back to Christ. It calls us back to our neighbor. And Lent also turns us back to the depth and the breadth of the Christian tradition. It connects us to a tradition that has been practiced in Christian communities for over 1,700 years. And this is helpful because a good spiritual life connects us to where we come from. Even in the midst of where we are now, it gives us roots. A good spiritual life carries a tradition on its back, tying us to the past in a way that enables us to know who we are in the present and who we hope to become. Some of you who come from the north, you're familiar of this practice of tying the rope to the barn. Anybody know what I'm talking about, or are we all too southern for this? Um, so in the north, when they sense that there's a blizzard on the horizon, oftentimes people will take a rope and tie it from their house to the barn. Because if they need to go to the barn in the middle of the blizzard, there have been too many reports of people wandering out into their yard, and in the whiteout of the snow, they get lost, and they freeze to death in their own backyard. So they tie a rope to know where they're coming from and to know where we're going. This is the purpose of seasons like Lent. They tie us to something. They let us know that we don't just come into this room week to week and make things up, but that we are actually participating and practicing in a tradition that is ancient. But it's not just for antiquity's sake. We're participating in a tradition that tells us who we are today and also who we are hoping to become in the future. Lent ties us to the barn. Joan Chittister put it this way, this is what Lent does for us. It's about reaching back to remember who we are, even while we keep on becoming more than we are. Finally, as we journey into Lent, we remember that we are not alone. Yes, we walk with the church throughout the world, but we also walk with the one who has gone before us. 
the one who brings us home again. In this season, we walk step in step with Jesus himself. And this is where our gospel text leads us today. Are you with me so far? Let me talk about flannel boards. Who remembers flannel boards? Yes, yes. I see a lot of hands not raised, and we're about to have a lot of fun. So I grieve the fact that kids today will never fully understand and appreciate both the wonder and the terror of flannel boards. For anyone who's unfamiliar, and there seem to be several of you, some of us grew up going to Sunday school. And at Sunday school, they had these big green boards made of flannel that sat on an easel. If you're having a hard time picturing this, imagine a whiteboard. Now imagine that it's green and furry. And that is a flannel board. So these teachers, they use these flannel boards as a way to teach us kids Bible stories. And every teacher had these Ziploc bags. Who remembers the Ziploc bags? And they were full of Bible characters and animals and clothing and props like trees and boats and wells. Because apparently you can tell every story in the Bible with trees and boats and wells. I remember the morning that my Sunday school teacher, Miss Brenda, taught us the story of Noah and the flood. She had an ark, a boat, and animals, and there was Noah who looked suspiciously a lot like Moses. And his family, and there was rain, and there were ravens and doves. And at the time, the whole story registered to me as, as this story about how Noah saves all the animals. Like, that was the whole point. That God sends a flood because people were bad, but he needed to save some people, mostly because he needed the people to save the animals. So Noah is obedient, he saves them, but only two of each, because, you know, the boat's only so big, and you only need two to... Some of you need to talk to Brett and Janice afterward. <laughs> but, you know, now we know that this is not the point of the story at all. It isn't about the animals, even though they take up a lot of the narrative. It's not about the animals. This story of Noah and the flood is a story about judgment about how the unrighteous people are destroyed and the righteous people are saved. And this isn't the only story of this kind of judgment that we encounter in Scripture. In addition to the flood, we have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, a story in which God, seeing that the people want to make a name for themselves, confuses their language and scatters them over the face of the earth. And historically, then, one of the most prominent stories that we encounter in the season of Lent, is that of the wandering in the wilderness. So the one thing that these stories have in common, the flood, the wilderness, the tower, is that they are all kind of a cautionary tale of destruction in the moments of judgment. Like so far in human history, this is what happens when judgment comes. When wickedness reaches its tipping point, destruction follows. These moments of destruction seem to only limit wickedness. They never actually rectify the wickedness. So what we see is that in world's past, all places of judgment end in death. 
in the tower, in the water, and in the wilderness. So why are all of these stories offered to us in this Lenten season? Let's move on now into redeeming spaces. I think one of the reasons that we're offered these stories in a season like Lent has to do with the disruptive nature of Jesus. Like so much of Jesus' life, today's gospel text is a subversion of a story that we thought we knew. It uproots the whole narrative in a way that only the life of Christ can. And here's what I mean by the subversive nature of Jesus to give you another example. You may remember in Matthew chapter 5, we find Jesus on a mountain. And he uses this brilliant rhetorical claim, you have heard, but I tell you. Let's look at some of these verses, starting in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You thought this was about that, but it's really been about this all along. You thought you heard, but you heard incorrectly. And so I tell you, this is the subversive nature of Christ. What we thought we knew about God, what we thought we knew about judgment and righteousness and how they work, all of that gets uprooted in the life of Christ. In the story of the flood, we know that the righteous are saved in the ark and the unrighteous, the damned, are destroyed in the waters. But here in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus himself goes down into the waters. Only this time, as 1 Peter puts it, Jesus goes into the waters, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one dies and the unrighteous are saved. The whole narrative that we know gets flipped on its head. So here in these waters, the unrighteous are saved through another kind of washing, a different kind of washing. It's the washing of baptism. And through this washing, a new humanity is established. In this way, the waters that were previously associated with death and chaos and destruction are now redeemed to become the waters that bring us new life in Christ. But this is only because Christ first goes to those depths. And this is precisely how God works, isn't it? That the things we're most sure are meant to destroy us, to bring God's judgment, to sink us to the depths, these are the things through which God offers us new life, offers us resurrection. And it's only by letting go of what we thought we knew that new life is possible. This is what Lent is about. The letting go of the old. The things we thought we knew. The things we were so sure were going to save us. And finding there's new life offered to us in the person of Jesus. I love the imagery that's presented to us here 
in these two stories, in the story of the flood and in the story of Jesus' baptism. We do see the water gets redeemed, but we also see these two kinds of doves. You'll remember in the story of the flood, Noah sends out a dove in hopes of finding a new home for themselves, in hopes of finding land. However, at Jesus' baptism, we see another dove. We see one that descends upon Jesus and signifying the new home that we find in the person of Jesus. As we continue to read the story of the flood through the lens of Christ, we see that in one sense, Jesus is the ark, but in another sense, he is the one who keeps us from sinking. He is the one who houses all the righteousness, and at the same time, Jesus is now outside the ark. Jesus is in the depths, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is the scandal of 1 Peter's proclamation. Let's hear it again. He, Jesus, was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few were saved through the water. In rabbinic tradition, these spirits in prison, those who perished in the flood, would have been disallowed to share in the resurrection for an eternity. But here we see Jesus, through his own death and resurrection, descending to those depths. This is what it looks like for Christ to go before us. This is the hope that we find in a season like Lent, that even though this journey calls us to empty ourselves, to follow Christ, to pick up our cross, and to bring us to the end of ourselves, Christ has gone before us. So that even at the end of ourselves, we're not alone. Christ is there. He's redeemed the spaces that seasons like Lent call us to participate in. Let's look at another text. In Genesis 11, we find the story of the Tower of Babel. And if you remember, this is a story in which God, seeing that the people want to, quote, make a name for themselves, he confuses their language and he scatters them over the face of the earth. So again, like the flood, it's a story in which we see that wickedness is limited, but wickedness is not rectified. This is a short, confusing story that sits right at the beginning of Scripture, and it seems to be of little consequence to us other than explaining maybe the why of people speaking different languages, kind of like an origins story, if you will. But let's take a deeper look at what's happening. Here we see at Babel a unified people, people that all speak the same language, people that all live in the same location, people that seem to have the same goals. And this seems to be in some ways a fulfillment of the kingdom. When every tribe, every tongue, every nation is being brought together. Yet even in their unity, they still had a wicked purpose. Interestingly enough, some scholars look at these texts as a cautionary tale of what happens when a people use their technology to oppress other people. At this point in history, most structures were simply mud, sticks, and rocks. And you can't build anything very high with just mud, sticks, and rocks. But if you can take that mud and those rocks 
and those sticks. And you can put those things in a mold. If you can make that mold really, really hot, and you can do this over and over and over again, what do you get? You get bricks. And now we're going somewhere. Now you can stack these bricks. You can pack them together with asphalt. And you can build for yourself a name. So what do they do with this new technology, with this new invention, something that no one else on the planet seems to have? Let us make a name for ourselves. And of course, as we know, God's judgment is to confuse their tongues, to confuse their language, and scatter this sort of ambition, this sort of posture that's rooted in pride and rooted in selfishness, and especially the sort of posture that looks to use what we have in order to oppress and intimidate other tribes and other nations. And then along comes Jesus, and we follow him through his life and his death and his resurrection, and we come to the day of Pentecost. And at the season of Pentecost, we know that the Spirit descends and we receive new tongues, a tongue that is now unifying the broken, confused, and scattered people. But again, this is not for our gain. It's not for our ambition. This is not for us to make a name for ourselves. It is so that his name will be great. So that the tools and the resources and the technology available to us can be used for his glory rather than oppression, rather than intimidation. This is the subversive nature of Jesus. When we think we know the story, Jesus flips the script. When we think these stories are about simply limiting wickedness, whether we're looking at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River and Jesus' baptism of us in the Spirit at Pentecost, both Babel and the flood are finally overcome. Also in this season of Lent, we see not only the judgment of the flood overturned and a reunification of a broken people by the Spirit, we see that even the wilderness gets redeemed. From very early on, the apostles and the church fathers connected Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness with the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the desert. For the Israelites, the wilderness was very much a place of destruction, a destruction of who they thought they were as they were being formed into the people of God. But in this journey, the Israelites continued to find themselves unfaithful. By setting out into the wilderness, Jesus is claiming that even this place, this place where our identity as faithful people of God was once destroyed, we can now finally find our identity in Christ. Jesus withdraws into the wilderness. He empties himself, and it's solely for the clarity of his own identity. He returns, the text tells us, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus can go into the wilderness... And because he can go and find his true identity, because he can return back full of the power of the Holy Spirit, we too can participate in the wilderness in seasons like Lent. 
We can now move into these seasons of emptying ourselves and letting God fill us. We can now participate because Jesus has gone before us. While we wander into these spaces of emptying ourselves, we too can emerge on the other side full of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only through the life of Christ that places of death can become places of salvation. Again, this is what 1 Peter means when we read the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ himself redeems the waters. Christ himself redeems our tongues. Christ himself redeems the wilderness, but only through death. Without Christ's death and without his resurrection, a season like Lent, practices like fasting, practices like giving, all of it is just a futile gesture. We might as well call it a diet or self-improvement if it not for the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we begin the journey. And inevitably, in our wandering, we will arrive at Good Friday. And we will grieve. But we also come to Good Friday and witness that as we are faced with our own mortality, Christ still goes before us, even in death. So that at the end of ourselves, we are still not alone.